Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Koshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. You guys know the drill. Every single week we sit down with a design master. We're going all around the country, finding the best people. And they tend to be great at many things, but they tend to be amazing at very specific things. This week we're in Austin, and we're speaking to someone at IBM. Yep. And I know you want to name the name, but hold on. <laughs> hold on. This guy was granted $100 million to bring design to IBM. That's how seriously IBM takes design. Now, who are we speaking to today? Now, that person is Phil Gilbert. He's the head of design at IBM. He's going to tell us about the legacy of design, scaling design thinking, and investing that $100 million. <sighs> you guys will get to see him in this partner message. He's also a partner on the show. Thank you, IBM. We're going to get into it. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Bill, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thank you guys for having me. Awesome. What's one thing about design that's clear to you that you don't think is clear to other people? One thing about design that's clear to me that's not clear to other people. Uh, you know, I don't know. So, uh, I, look, I, I don't think there are many new ideas. Uh, I think, uh, go back and read Shakespeare, there, there are very few motivations and there are very few stories and they've all been told. Uh, so I don't know if I have anything about design that other people haven't thought of. Um, I guess if I bring something unique, it's that I started uh, as a business person and an entrepreneur. And so I think what I bring to uh, the role that I have and what I hope I bring to the designers that are in and come through our program is a perspective that comes from the perspective of getting differentiated outcomes to market. And, uh, and, and I think that, that the intention behind that uh, goes beyond what is typically considered just good design. In fact, I have a, my, my, my new saying is, uh, you know, Thomas Watson Jr. had the famous saying of good design is good business. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like good design is table stakes these days. And what we really need to instill uh, in designers that are designing for business outcomes is a notion of designing for differentiated delightful outcomes. Simply delightful outcomes, you know, those are, th those are becoming relatively commonplace today. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think that I bring that perspective. And I think, you know, when I think about it, uh, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like the ingredients in my gumbo are identical to everybody else's, but I, but I emphasize certain ingredients differently because of that perspective. Um, now, if you, you know, if you go back to the, to the stories that, uh, of, of designers in IBM's past, like Paul Rand, uh, Paul Rand asked, uh, we, I've, got, I've become friends, we'll probably get to some of the friendships that I've been able to make as being in the role that I'm in. But uh, this one guy who worked with Paul uh, was talking to me and we were driving one day and he's, he is a formally trained designer, uh, has been around obviously for, for a while. And he was saying, you know, one time he goes, oh, I was real young, I had just started working, uh, and he actually worked in Elliott Noise studio. And he goes, and I, was, I was there with Uncle Paul. They called him Uncle Paul. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, he said, I was driving with Uncle Paul. And Uncle Paul looks at me, and he said, oh, 
So, Gordon, what is design? And he goes, I froze. He goes, here I have spent my, my whole life wanting to be a designer. I, I trained as a designer. And I'm sitting here with Paul Rand driving in his car. I should know the answer to this question, <laughs> right? Yeah. And he goes, I froze. And I said something, you know, <laughs> the intention, blah, 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 blah. And he said, Rand looked at me and just kind of shook his head. And he goes, you got it all wrong. Design is about relationships. Full stop. And I like that. Uh, We emphasize the relationship. Uh, The relationship between things is what I, I I think there's, I think there's a profundity in that statement that every day this notion of the relationship of information to itself as it's presented in a digital application is an example. The relationship that we have as experience givers, as hosts to our guests, is a relationship. The relationship we have with our competition, differentiation, is a relationship. And I really think that there's a, there's a profundity that Paul had about design that I certainly don't. Maybe that's a better answer to your question, but I, I guess those are the things I think. So you mentioned some big names, right? Elliot Noyes, Paul Rand. So IBM has an astonishing computing and design history. Um, you guys helped land man on the moon, right? Yes. Uh, invented the, the credit card, as I had heard. Um, you have legends here, uh, like Paul Rand, like Elliot Noyes, um, and Ray and Charles Eames, right? Uh, and now we've got Phil Gilbert, right? <laughs> so I'm very curious, what is this? Yeah, like, so where do you stand in contrast yeah. to these giants, right? Because there's an amazing legacy that has been bestowed upon you in your trust. Where do you stand um, in your understanding of design that might be contrasted to theirs in the world that we live in today? And also, is there a secret about design that you now know that they couldn't or didn't? No, no. <laughs> the answer to your last question is no. Right. There are secrets they knew yeah. that I have yet to learn. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think, um, so first of all, uh, I, I personally do separate Elliot from the others in one sense that I'll talk about in a second, although they were all, I mean, Elliot, amazing architect, yeah. you know, trained designer, the credited designer on the IBM Selectric typewriter. Sure. I mean, okay, he's an iconic designer, yes. But the others are, they are great designers. I, I, I really do believe, um, I am not one of those people, but I believe that the great designers that we will be talking about 100 years from now are coming through this program today. Mm-hmm. I think you met some of them today. Mm-hmm. I don't know which ones yeah. mm-hmm. specifically, um, but I do believe that this program, uh, I, I believe as, as caretaker, uh, your, your word is, is spot on. That, that's how I view my role right now. Yeah. It's, it's the rejuvenation of the program and a caretaker of something that was here before me and will hopefully, and I, I feel sure will be here after me. Yeah. Um, but the designers that we are creating are the designers for the 21st century. And I believe that we are instilling in these designers a few traits. They aren't secrets that could not have been known to those guys, but I think that they are things that were not as important in the 20th century as in the 21st. Mm -hmm. For example, by and large, and this is my my overarching view of the universe, and uh, there are certainly differences, 
but by and large, the 20th century to me was the century of commoditization. Mm. And virtually every capability that we can imagine so far, we commoditized in the 20th century. And the 21st century is about dealing with, uh, with the experience of consuming those capabilities and delivering those capabilities, making those capabilities more broadly consumable and deliverable parts of the world or to segments of the population that couldn't access them. Uh, and there's a series of complexities in the 21st century that can't be solved by the process orientation of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And that's why the design mindset and why design is so important. The, the ability to collaborate across disciplines is so important. So I think that, again, I, I, th I think it comes back to no particular secret, but I think the emphasis that we are placing on different parts of the design process are very different. I no long, I personally don't believe, I, I believe that we're kind of past the era of the superstar designer, mm -hmm. and we are in the era of teams and collaboration. Uh, that is a difference. You know, um, in, in, in the 20th century, you could have a Paul Rand who single-handedly did certain things. You could have a, a Ray and Charles Eames and coming out of that studio, you know, massive numbers of, or, you know, some number of iconic things. Uh, our world is uh, a lot more complex. It's a lot more immediately distributed internationally. And, and, uh, and I think that puts new, new demands and it makes teaming across disciplines, across companies, across ecosystems, much more important. Mm -hmm. So we emphasize that, and I think the designers that we have in our program are, are learning how to communicate. I believe that they're being uh, instilled with backbones of steel and grit mm -hmm. that, not, that weren't necessarily required. Um, now, Elliot's a different case. Um, Elliot created the program, and I think that there is, uh, in that context of his work, I think there is more of a direct lineage between what Elliot did, what a couple of others uh, uh, have done since, Tom Hardy, Lee Green, both of whom were phenomenal IBMers and leaders of the program. And that, that legacy has been handed to me to, uh, in our case, really rejuvenate, rekindle, uh, and grow that design program, the corporate design program, uh, and essentially try to instill a culture across all of IBM that is independent of the excellent craft of the individual designer. So you mentioned the program, and I definitely want to get to the program, um, but we also spoke about you being a caretaker, right? Mm -hmm. IBM is a 100-year-old institution, and what's surprising to me, amazing to me really, is they committed $100 million to design, right? And they placed you as the caretaker of that. Um, I'm just really curious, what did those conversations look like? How did you get that buy-in? How did, what? What were you saying in those meetings for them to actually give you such a trust? <laughs> I wish we'd recorded them. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, first of all, uh, it's way more than 100 million now. Today we have 1,300 formally trained designers at IBM. That's so great. Show off. we can all do the math. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, mm -hmm. big isn't better. And, and I'm, yeah. you know, big isn't better. But our investment in design is massive. So let me just correct that. Uh, but having said that, it didn't start out that way. Um, I, I didn't have any conversations with, uh, uh, you know, Jenny, who, who really is the, um, you know, spiritual and literal presence behind the program every day. Um, 
right after she became CEO in December of 2011, uh, she has been very focused on IBM uh, really looking at and delivering a superior client experience. And in the context of that, also said, and by the way, that means that our users' experience with our products and solutions and processes has to be better as well. So think of client as one of our you know, brand clients and then the users within those, whatever they do, whether they are the security analyst that's trying to thwart cyber threats uh, or the data center operator that's operating a data center with thousands of you know, servers or, um, or it's the oncologist that's trying to deliver you know, care or if it's a mayor of a city that's trying to deliver better services to the citizens. Th those individual users and that's really where the conversation with me started. Uh, they, uh, I, I think the literal words uh, that, that were said to Jenny was, there's a user experience fanatic in Austin, <laughs> and you know, may, maybe he can help. Uh, and that's where it started. And it really started with, um, I had, uh, I, my company had been bought by IBM in 2010, and we were known for delivering a great user experience in our product. Uh, I had been asked to run the, the uh, subdivision that bought my company, and we brought these practices, and we brought designers into that group, and over, over, that, over a period of about 18 months, we de delivered demonstrably different outcomes in that small group, and then uh, Jenny was named CEO and started this, this initiative. So we had a little bit of a business case. So that first conversation was, whatever you did in that smaller group, and at IBM, small means 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about a 1,000-person group. Whatever you did over the last 18 months in that group, can we do it everywhere across 350,000 people? And I said, I don't know, uh, but went away. And the first conversation was based on the engineering capacity that we had. Um, I came back and I said, if you want to do this, uh, we need to be willing to bring on board about 1,000 formally trained designers. This isn't about shifting a thousand people, mm -hmm. it's we don't have these people, we need to go get them. And to her credit, and to her credit every day since, uh, she came back just a very few days later and said, go, how fast can we go? Yeah. Now that initial how fast can we go, the first year was a uh, hundred. So the first conversation was not a hundred million, it wasn't anything close mm -hmm. to that, it was uh, I think we could get 100 people. I really thought in my heart we'd get 50. Mm -hmm. uh, I, but I thought in 2013, I committed that we would try to go get 100. Um, we ended up getting 100. And the result of the work that those 100 did is what led to the big conversation. What were those results? O outstanding. We, we, we uh, initially started with seven projects mm -hmm. from all over the business. And uh, I would say uh, two of them didn't turn out so well. That, they, that was fine, but there were issues with the teams. There were issues with the kind of projects we picked. Yeah. And we intentionally picked projects with very different patterns because we wanted to see where it really worked and where it might struggle a bit. So two, we, you would kind of say, okay, experiment failed, learned. One was okay. Four were four were demonstrably different. We weren't measuring NPS at the time, but 
but if we had been, you would have seen a 40 to 50 point difference in NPS. I mean, it, wow. it, it was, they, they were demonstrably different. The, the client reactions were different. The user reactions were different. The sales were different. Everything was different. Can you give us an example of, of one of the projects? Uh, one of the projects was our, uh, was at, at the time, it was called Pure Application System. You can think of it as a, you can think of it as a, as a mainframe running Linux. It wasn't. We, we now have a mainframe running Linux. It was, it was a set of, uh, of, of, of traditional distributed servers running Linux, but hooked together and prepackaged with a set of applications. And you could buy this system and just start using it. Um, the differences in sales after we had applied design thinking, after we had put designers on the software experience around, mm. uh, we had initially taken a, a fairly traditional IBM approach, which was... This is a hardware pro project and a hardware problem, uh, when in fact, that was, that was just what it was. Mm -hmm. But the, the issue of getting people to use it was a software problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, you know, within a quarter of the first release of the uh, uh, first you know, version that was released after this uh, team had been in what we call our Hallmark program, um, it, it was it was nine day difference. So uh, I'm th there's something here that strikes me as peculiar. So this conversation happened in 2011, 2012, 2012. Yeah. Okay, but as far back as say the 50s and 60s, you know Thomas Watson Watson Jr.'s famous quote of "Good design is good business," which is what one of the quotes you opened with here, um, suggested that IBM back then knew that design was important. Yep. Um, and now, granted, it's table stakes. So I'll give you that. Um, but was there like it feels like there maybe have been a moment in the 70s 80s and 90s where that fire burned out a little bit the design fire burned out a little bit i'm sure i wonder if there's a cautionary tale there for companies who might lose the 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 spark of design like are there are there indicators sure. uh, that that you could point to in IBM specifically that could help other people? Well, uh, it could help other people so the the the, the short answer is is the short answer is yes and no, and I'll talk a little bit about the specifics. But I think in general, what you're dealing with, you know, when you talk about something like design, uh, which, uh, can, in my opinion, cannot be independently measured mm -hmm. as to its, what value did you bring? When somebody writes a line of code, mm -hmm. you, like, it may be good code or it's bad code, but there's a line written and it goes through the compiler and it executes. Like, which is weird because it may be a horrible algorithm, it may be slow, mm. but there is value attributed to that because you can see it. Design is, is harder to, to get, in my opinion, a culture of people um, tuned into uh, uh, understanding its unique value. Uh, so th that's one thread. The other thread is by and large, the way it had been practiced, uh, and I think is practiced in most places, is it's practiced as an other. It's practiced as design, capital D. Uh, and that almost precludes, to some degree, design ever actually having a seat at the business table. Mm. It's, it, it's too often not positioned as a business thing it's positioned as a design thing. I think those two things, the fact that it's very difficult to ascribe specific value to it, and the fact that 
there were superstar designers and there was certainly great des designers at IBM, but they weren't necessarily leading business strategy, allowed us and allows many companies to take its eye off the ball. It, it doesn't necessarily sustain because if you don't have a seat at that business table over long periods of time, I'm talking decades, mm -hmm. your influence will wane because there are other things that will take top of mind, whether it's finances. In the case of IBM, that was a big thing in the 80s, right? right, and early 90s. And so you just tend to take your eye off the ball. That was one thing that happened. The second thing that happened was our design program, such as it was, was very heavily on brand and hardware. Mm -hmm. um, our iconic designs that you remember, the designs of the System 360, the design of the Selectric hardware, and even into the 2000s, our hardware design is still winning awards, even in the 2000 teens. We're, uh, year before last, we won uh, the, the, uh, international, uh, the international design. Uh, IF Industry Forum. Yes, uh, Hardware of the Year Award. Richard Sapper worked with IBM through the aughts, right? So um, we had retained hardware design bona fides we had retained brand design. So if you think about the iconic films of Ray and Charles Eames, Mathematica, Powers of Ten, that were done for IBM, you know, our brand is still, you know, is still there. In the 1990s, we started moving into software. And if you look at the contribution of software to our business, it's almost completely software now. We never built a design capability intentionally in the software division. And now that's what you're... And now, yeah. and so now all of a sudden, you know, we, it's 2012, 2013, yeah. 2014. Well, software is the thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, the th it, it's all that there is, in yeah. a sense. And we had, uh, we had just never focused. So we'd never even started there to be, to, to be realistic. And so um, that, that, that was really kind of why. It was, it was lost because it was, to some degree, it was de-emphasized culturally. And it was lost because we got into a new business that, that grew like crazy, and we just never took those same principles to that new business area. So cautionary tale for others, uh, you need to keep design top of mind all the time. It, it is part of your culture. It's, and as we get to the, the way we've structured the program, which I, I'm sure we will, uh, it's why we've structured our program very differently than, than the way most companies are thinking about their design program. So it's interesting when you define design in most businesses as an other. I mean, that's just, it just clarified so many things for me. Um, and, you know, we, we've heard this theme from a lot of our interviews so far about design being a methodology that can be used by anyone within a business, right? And it sounds like that's part of the thing that you're trying to usher into this company right now um, or bring back to this business. Um, but I don't imagine it's permeated the entire company just yet. You, you, you're over 400,000 employees, right? right? Um, so I'm curious, are there any patterns that you see between design, sorry, not design, teams within IBM that has adopted this methodology versus teams that have not yet caught on to it? Yeah. Uh, I, I, think there's, I think there's a couple. Um, the most important thing in my mind for any team is that it needs to be intentionally formed with the skill sets required to win. And the skill sets need to essentially be in place in the right ratios. Uh, and I think that a lot of people don't necessarily, not just in IBM, I think in the world, I think a lot of people don't actually believe that. 
they don't actually believe that the intentional formation of teams. A lot of people still think that, oh, you need 100 heads? Here's right. 100 heads. Yeah. You should make it work. It's 100 people. Sure. And they're smart. And their motivations are all pure. It's not like anybody shows up to work. You know, I've been in business for many decades. I've never once met a person that showed up to work to make their life harder. Right. <laughs> or to do crappy stuff. Yeah. Everybody shows up with pure intentions. Yeah. Everybody shows up to do the right thing. But for some reason, they don't. And so uh, what I've found is that the multidisciplinary teaming and creating a team intentionally with the right culture and the right multidisciplinary skill sets, the right diversity, uh, that is everything. Mm -hmm. And if you get that team practicing with a, with a design mindset, which we call design thinking, we call it here IBM design thinking, but I typically refer to it as the design mindset, if we get a good multidisciplinary team that's diverse, working with a design mindset, we will get great outcomes. It will happen. Um, where it doesn't catch on is where that team really isn't all that diverse. Mm -hmm. It's not diverse typically in its, uh, its, it may or may not be diverse in its cultural makeup. It is almost certainly not diverse in its skill set makeup. A team of 30 engineers and one designer. So you're going to lose. <laughs> you're going to lose. I don't have to I don't really don't have to know anymore. If you actually make a success, it was serendipitous. <laughs> um, so that that that's kind of where um, it's why the number of ratios, you know, I, I, I'm really serious when I say, you know, it's not important to me to be big for big sake or or the biggest What's important for me to, is to have enough gravity in the designer, in the formally trained designer population, so that we can have enough teams that are diverse enough to deliver sustainably the right outcomes. That's the only reason why big is important, because the rest of our population is big. Mm -hmm. So we're going to cut the break in a second, but and when we get back from break, I want to talk more about this design mindset and how you cultivated it, how you're scaling it. But before we go to break, um, I'm just curious if you think about this. If Design, if this investment in design at IBM was to fail for any reason, what would that reason be? <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, I, I think it would be for this reason. Uh, I, I think it would be that we had uh, too many folks that controlled the team makeup mm. that weren't actually uh, creating diverse enough teams. Mm. Um, the, 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 there is... It is a one-to-one -one correlation between sustainable good outcomes versus not. Mm -hmm. And it is the makeup of the team. Uh, and basically teaming in the right ratios. And you can give all the lip service you want to design. You can give all the lip service you want to design thinking. Uh, if you don't actually have uh, people with professional skill sets and craft, uh, in the right ratios, your probability of success is much, much lower. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Of course, we're inspired by our design program, which is over 60 years old. But today, 
IBM employs more than 1,300 professional designers, and we've certified more than 60,000 IBMers in the practices of IBM design thinking. The result? Diverse teams working more closely than ever with our clients, their users, and our partners to create modern solutions that provide differentiated, human-centered outcomes to the world. We'd love to share this story more closely with you. And I hope to see you soon at one of our IBM studios worldwide. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their deep understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Airbnb, and Netflix. Let me tell you three reasons why I'd use it. One, poor communication is one of the biggest blockers for talented teams. Two, when you don't get feedback from others early and often, you can get lost in the woods, and that's just bad for everyone. And three, without a prototype, it can be hard to show others your full vision for a design. Envision solves all of that. You can rapidly prototype at the front end of the design process and collaborate across every stage of the project. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com and use our access code INV-HIGHRESOLUTION for three months free. So we were talking about Paul Rand yeah. earlier. On this table, Yeah. <clears throat> this thing right here. Oh, look at that. This was given to me by one of our former heads of design at IBM mm -hmm. who I've met. I've gotten to meet uh, all these people, which has just been, uh, been magical. Uh, this was given to me by Tom Hardy, who's now an adjunct professor at SCAD. Mm. Uh, but he used to he used to be, he was here when, when Paul was running around. And Paul used to wander the halls at IBM with, this is his folder. No. I'm not talking about, that's his design. Yes, it is his design. Wow. Right here, IBM design program. Come yeah. on. This was his, this was one that he carried around. Oh, that. And he used to carry these things around. And uh, we'll see if you guys can see it. And he'd pull this out. This is a, this is a poster that he made. Oh, he wanted to make sure that people had that's his so poster. Wow. And uh, <laughs> and then he'd leave with a couple of books. I just want to say, wow. if you guys are listening on iTunes or your podcast, you yeah, got to find yeah, YouTube because yeah, this yeah. is this is really cool. And so Paul wrote this book. It's called. Um, it, it, it's actually not called Good, Good Design is is Good Business. It's called Good Design is Goodwill. Mm. He wrote this book, and. Um, the story behind the story is, and he would carry this around IBM, and anybody who would listen to him, that yeah. he was kind of you know, involved with, he would hand this, he'd hand this brochure to. Mm. The great thing about this particular book, which was in this brochure that he would hand to IBM executives all around as he walked around, is that IBM actually commissioned this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, the story goes that in this book, he starts to talk about this issue of culture and how it can be lost, and that corporate design programs are, uh, are uh, sometimes will do that. Mm. And he was asked to take that part out of the book by us. Right. <laughs> but? And he was at his house, <laughs> and he stands up, walks over to his desk, 
writes a check back for the retainer, <laughs> wow. and hands it, and wow. gets Yale University to publish the book. <laughs> wow. And then walks around handing it out. That's awesome. That's amazing. We now celebrate that kind of thing, yeah. uh, because it's important that, uh, you know, it, it, it's important to us that our, you know. Just so I want to make sure people can see it. This is the actual folder. Yeah. That's that was a folder that came out of, according to Tom. I feel like yeah. I'm on HSN or something. Yeah. 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 Well, it's not, yeah. For, sale. It's not yeah. for sale. It's not for sale. Yeah. Buy this folder. Bidding starts now. <laughs> so, you know, the, that's, that's that's a great story. Yeah. The, these things, uh, when we started our program, the future was unclear. It's still unclear. We're, we're you know, three and a half or four years into the rejuvenation of it. Mm. Uh, yes, we have 1,300 designers, but, but it's, it's not certain that it, Survives forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, we're early in our journey. If you look at, if you look at design-centric companies uh, that truly have this in their DNA, you're talking about decades and decades of serious investment over the last 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. We can name those companies, right? Um, we we continue to celebrate. Uh, when we started this program, we deliberately celebrated, and we continue to celebrate. Paul Rand and Ray and Charles and Elliot and Aero Saarinen and these people uh, because they, they continually remind us that we have this in our bones. Mm -hmm. We can do this. We, we've done this before. Um, we now have to figure out how to make this truly sustaining. Uh, and uh, so celebrating our, our, our designers and our past and celebrating our heritage uh, is something we love to do because it keeps us connected. It also challenges us. You guys saw outside my office, we've got a big picture of Ray mm -hmm. here with a cup of coffee. And I walk out of my office every day, and the designers that are around, you know, it's not only a reminder of that we had this, it's, it's a reminder that these are the expectations we are being held to. Mm -hmm. um, we don't take the fact that Paul designed our logo, and it one remains one of the iconic logos ever, right? Uh, Paul designed our packaging, you know, behind here. Uh, Ray and Charles Eames, the, the, the influence that they continue to have on this company, not just in their designs that they did, but in their way of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that we take seriously, and it's a challenge to each of us because um, it's hard to live up to that every day. Uh, so anyway, that's just w one of our stories. So think, thinking, um, it seems to be a big theme here. I, when we walked in the office, we passed this wall that just think, right? Our, our mugs say think, the box says think, everything says think, right? I, I, I mean, I love it. But um, there's a quote from Dr. Nicholas uh, Butler, right? Um, he was the president of Columbia University um, and during his time, very influential philosopher and educator. Um, there's a quote where he says, all of the problems of the world could be settled easily if men were only willing to think, which is very powerful. Um, I'm really curious, how, you th how do you think we're doing as an industry today? Ooh. Uh, I, I believe the lack of humility is uh, rampant. And that, uh, that we are coming out with a lot of things these days, and I, I, I'm not sure that we necessarily are caring enough about the implications of some of the things we're doing. Uh, you know, the, 
at IBM, we take this very seriously because we're on the forefront, for example, of AI in the cognitive world. Mm -hmm. um, we've come out with a statement very clearly that talks about uh, the, the, the moral choices we have committed to take with respect to the development and delivery of AI. Um, that's just one example where um, I feel like our industry as a whole um, doesn't necessarily reward the deep thinking about the implications of the human experience. And uh, I worry about that sometimes. Um, I have a lot of faith in people, uh, so I don't worry about it too much. But I think as an industry, we, can, we could be a little bit more humble in our approach to delivering some of the capabilities that we are unleashing. Um, I have this uh, thing that I, this saying that I, I came up with uh, where I was thinking about hubris and arrogance, which I think unfortunately defines some aspect of our industry. Um, and I was trying to think of the opposite of that, and I really think the opposite of that is curiosity. And so I, I in my mind, curiosity is actually humility with ambition. Mm -hmm. And it's the humility of the mind to, to, you know, look, I have an ego. A lot of people have egos. I'm not talking about ego. I'm talking about a real humility of accepting the fact that you don't know everything you think you know. And if you marry that humility with ambition, that's what really drives curiosity. Um, so I guess I'd like to see more curiosity in that sense, uh, a little bit more humility. Uh, I'd certainly like to see a lot more diversity. Um, we, we, we strive for it, we intentionally mine for diversity, um, but we need to do that, but I guess, I guess that's... I do agree with your earlier statement, by the way, that the days of the superstar designer are maybe long gone at this point, that inclusion and, and, and teamwork is really the, the way forward. Um, it really so, is. Um, yes. it, it, the world's, A, the world's are, problems are, are, are very complex, mm -hmm. A, and B, the world is moving at a fast pace. That's right. Yeah. We're taping this today. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Uh, I was thinking about it on my way in this morning. It was. We are taping this before the tenth anniversary of the iPhone. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it's happening this year, mm -hmm. um, but I think it was June. I think is 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 when it was released, or it was announced in June and released mm -hmm. in September, somewhere, somewhere like that. Um, just like that seems like we've always had them, yeah. right? And yep. so, what that means is, and one of the things that we've found in our program, and one of the reasons we design, one of the reasons we use design and design thinking, uh, to some degree, this started as a way to improve our user experience, which we talked about earlier. What this thing quickly became was the spearhead to IBM's transformation. Mm -hmm. Full stop. And the reason for that is this notion of diverse, empowered teams that had a purpose. And the purpose was put the user as the North Star. Right. And that's the thing that, that Agile as a framework doesn't quite have. Agile will get you somewhere. It doesn't necessarily care where it takes you. Right. If you marry that, which we've done with design thinking, 
it gives a purpose to those teams. And the purpose is to be a great host for your users, for people, for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, doing that uh, at speed, because the world is moving so fast, requires a team to be all together. Mm-hmm. I don't mean physically. We've actually, part of our, the magic of our version of design thinking is that you don't have to be physically together. But be that as it may, the, the reason this is so powerful is because it puts the business decision maker right there with the technologist, engineer, right there with the designer, and they are iterating in real time and making decisions and moving on. Mm-hmm. And that's the magic. The, the team has become the atomic unit of work, of, of, of outcomes. So tell us about IBM's design thinking and the design program that you're running here. Like, what skills and areas of expertise are you um, are you emphasizing? Well, uh, tons of different skills. Uh, so our, our approach to design thinking is is very much like, you know, there's no secret sauce to developing empathy and understanding, uh, rapid prototyping, getting feedback. Uh, what we have done with IBM design thinking, though, is we've really intentionally put some uh, tactical elements around it that allow it to scale to larger, uh, more complex teaming situations. And I'm typically talking about geographical complexity, but also size complexity. For example, I think in today's world, if you're uh, a business in today's world, um, of any size at all. I think the notion of two pizza teams is harmful. I think it's horrible. Two pizza teams? Yeah, the, the, this notion of a, uh, a team shouldn't be any bigger than you can feed with two pizzas. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> and it, it, you're, so you're saying you don't believe it? I don't believe you, in you that. Don't. I think it's silly, you know. I, I gotta tell you, that to get something to market, even at the company I sold IBM, you know, to get something to market required a lot of people. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, it required the technology team, which could be fairly small, but you needed lawyers, you needed finance people right. to figure out the business model. Yeah. You needed salespeople. You needed marketing to be aligned. Mm-hmm. Very quickly, if you really think about delivering a holistic experience, yeah. it, you're talking about a lot of people. Yeah. You may be talking about a lot of people 20 or 30, or you may be talking about a lot of people 200 or 300. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on what you're doing. You may be talking about a lot of people, a thousand, depending on what you're doing. Uh, So the real problem that needed to be solved, if the team was everything, if in fact the team, the multidisciplinary team, uh, is in fact the atomic unit of delivering an outcome, then we had to figure out a way to scale these design thinking practices and the mindset uh, to a very large team, uh, maybe who weren't in the same room. So uh, that was where, uh, you know, in the early early 2000s, uh, I started experimenting with kind of specific, specific tactical approaches to try to scale it mm-hmm. uh, so that larger teams could actually become oriented around the user could get aligned around the user-centered outcomes that we were trying to drive and actually facilitated execution and could be measured on those in-process elements so that I could more predictably uh, or, 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 or could, could more easily predict whether they would be successful. Th- this is all about increasing the probability of success. Mm-hmm. We, we can put 
the right pe- well, we can put the right number of people of any skill sets on a given team and they can still fail. That, that can happen. Yeah. So all we're trying to do is figure out what is a framework where at scale, meaning over, in our case, yeah. hundreds of teams, but over multiple teams, uh, and over teams that are themselves relatively complex, how can, how can we more predictably insert a set of lightweight tactics mm-hmm. that they can use to generate good outcomes? What are some of those tactics, and can you frame it in a way that anyone who's listening right now can actuate next week? Sure. Uh, probably the most important is going to seem very silly, um, and uh, sometimes people don't get it at first. It's this concept called hills. So one of the things that we do for our, our teams practicing IBM design thinking, of which we have about three or 400 today, uh, they are working on uh, hills. Uh, ideally three and three only at any given point in time. And a hill is simply this. A hill is what you're going to do for a user or a set of users and how it's going to be differentiated. So for example, uh, we had one of our teams come to us and they said, what are you working on? They said, we're working on disaster recovery for a particular kind of system. That means if the system is sitting in St. Louis and it gets bowled over by a tornado, we've got to go fire one up real quick in uh, Jersey City. Um, and I said, wow, that's, a, that's important. Uh, but surely that can be done. And they said, well, sure, it can be done. It's just very hard to do. Well, I said, why don't we, you've got 200 engineers working on this problem for this particular system. Uh, Why don't we just fire all you guys, and why don't we just write a two or 300-page manual? And they looked at me like I was crazy. I said, because that's disaster recovery. Like, you've said you're working on disaster recovery. We can get people recovered from a disaster by doing that. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we would never, you know, inflict that pain on our customer, right? I, I said, so what are you trying to do? They were like, disaster recovery. And I said, no, what specifically? And they finally kind of got it. And they were in, a, they were in their, their, their boot camp. for their, They were kicking off this project. And they would work on it during the day. They would go back to their hotel at night because they were in from all around the world. They'd come back the next day. And over the course of about three days, they really got their heads behind uh, this, this notion of we have to be very explicit about what it is we're trying to do with this release, this next release. And they came back on Friday and they said, we'd like to play you back our hill. And our hill is a data center operator can recover from a complete disaster with zero data loss within six hours. Hmm. So the hill is a story? The intent. The intent. A, a story comes up, a, a hill will support many stories mm-hmm. of how that person would, go, would do that. Yeah, it's the problem. It's the problem and, and a differentiated solution, but written in a way that is not, that, that, that is implementation agnostic. Yeah. And so, right. a data center operator, I now know who my user is. I can create the persona. I can go interview these people. I can scale that. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if I'm in Bratislava or Rome, or Shanghai, or Austin, or Raleigh, North Carolina, I can go find data center operators now. I know exactly who we're targeting. Zero data loss, I get it. Six hours, it's not two hours, it's not one hour, it's not real time, it's not 24 hours or 36 hours. At the end of this week, 
in this particular case, uh, one of the senior engineers came in and said, had we had this in place when we started the work on this a few months ago, you know, we would have saved, you know, a hundred man years of engineering. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was an estimate, but the point being that a hill is a way to align a team. It's a way so that they understand exactly what they're, you know, what, what is my contribution to what we're even doing? You know, it, it's, I've been in development in, in B2B software development for 35 plus years. It's incredible how often the person actually doing the coding gets completely divorced. They, don't, they have no idea what their contribution really is to the market outcome that they're trying to get. They don't even necessarily have a connection to the problem. Mm -hmm. They may have a connection to some particular story, but they don't know where the story fits in that bigger mm. problem. So it really aligns a team in a, in a very big, meaningful way around a differentiated outcome in the marketplace that, that, that you're trying to get to. And oh, by the way, when you now start scaling this out, this mechanism of talking about hills we're gonna take, mm -hmm. now it gives you a very quick way to scale this out to a broader ecosystem of stakeholders. Imagine, uh, imagine a set of executives at a startup or at any company who are going out to talk generically about the next release and the mm -hmm. roadmap. Well, I can tell you how the, you all know how they go. They go talk about whatever they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then they go to some customer that's going to be an important customer, the next big deal, and then they come back with some random feature request that they've committed to because we got to get this deal, uh -huh. right? Well, what if instead they actually knew the hills you were working on and could go direct the conversation? And instead of just saying, hey, what do you want next time? Say, hey, guess what we're working on? We're actually working on this, you know, we're working on blah, 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 blah. And uh, you just take so much noise out of the system. So now you're aligning not just the development team around the particular problem, you're aligning marketing, you're aligning executive stakeholders, you're, you're aligning your clients. Yeah. You're having a conversation in this space, not in a 360-degree space. Yeah. Um, th that's, that's one uh, very, very powerful aspect of how we, 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 we practice IBM design thinking. From that, everything uh, devolves. Now, uh, our product managers and our designers, our design researchers, typically work together to, to, to to create the draft hills. Um, uh, those hills are presented as all work around here is presented in a set of playbacks. Uh, that's the, the second key to IBM design thinking is this notion that uh, in any organization, what I've found is uh, when you hire, you know, when you start a company and you hire the, the first person that you hire, your partner, um, there is no conflict because every meeting that is held uh, Everybody in the company is in that meeting. Mm. When you hire the next person, when you get three people in a company, all of a sudden you have problems of scale and mm -hmm. silo. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, playbacks are a way uh, to eliminate hierarchy and silos. Right. Um, we need a safe place to present work. So playbacks are where we play back our work. And then finally, the sponsor users are a way that we, we measure mm -hmm. uh, if you've recruited people against the hills. Now you, you you said you have thirteen hundred designers. You're going to have a lot more uh, globally. I'm curious if you're looking for a peculiar or particular, not peculiar, particular set of skills or um, specific kind of character that makes up a strong designer. When people apply here, who yes. gets through the door? 
So multiple skill sets, uh, virtually every design skill set, um, visual design, user researcher, um, uh, front-end developers, many of them uh, enter through the, through the design door, um, editorial and content design, right. industrial design, UX design. So everybody's looking for T-shaped designers, but the vertical part of the T, yeah. virtually all, all of that. Yeah. But what we test for uh, most rigorously is your ability to collaborate. Mm. And so if, if there is a, you know, I, I, I tell our recruiters all the time, there are going to be some superstar designers that we are not going to give offers to, uh, and they're going to do they're, they're going to do very well, uh, but they won't work here because uh, our teams are. And I think uh, in any in any company of any size, the teaming is hard, collaborating is hard. Our teams are complex, our problems are complex, and we have people. Uh, at IBM, who in some cases have been working on problems 30, 35 years, they actually do have tremendous domain expertise. They also have tremendous bias that they don't necessarily sure. recognize in themselves. And uh, putting, putting designers in that situation is tough. So we need designers that have a terrific ability to collaborate. Yeah. And uh, if they don't have it when they came in, as I said before, they will have backbones of steel when they leave. Or, 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 or advance. How do, you, how do you explain the difference to these people about, because my guess is they're coming from design schools, right? By and um, large. By, by and large, okay. So how do you, when they walk through here, how do you differentiate design with design thinking? Uh, and does it catch them off guard? Is, this, is design thinking something they learn in schools? Um, or do they expect to learn it here? How does that work? Yeah. Um, by and large, uh, by and large, they've been practicing design thinking in schools. Is what we're finding. Gotcha. It's certainly not a foreign concept. Yeah. Um, what What's funny is uh, the, the whole uh, the whole aspect of multidisciplinary teams. They feel like it's funny because they'll come in and say, "Yes, we 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 absolutely you know talk to users. We do research. Yeah. So they're 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 doing that that thing." Uh, but we'll say, yeah, but you really haven't been doing it in multidisciplinary teams. They said, oh, absolutely, we have. We had a visual designer and a UX designer. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, the constraints of a design school, unfortunately. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so that's the real, w w when they really do their first incubator project, yeah. and they are really dealing with real product managers, and they're dealing with real developers and yeah. engineers and architects, mm -hmm. uh, that is a curveball. Yeah. And so we... We try to test for collaborative ability during the interview process, but it's not really until they get into their boot camp here that we really see uh, who naturally takes to it and, and who, who needs some help. And that's the one thing that, uh, you know, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the future in a bit, but uh, that is the one thing that we, we keep telling the academic institutions you need to increase uh, your interdisciplinary collaboration. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Um, I'm curious, for designers who are working at companies where design thinking is still foreign, right? they can expect to have some pushback when they try and push this methodology through. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of pushback can they actually expect and how can they better frame the, the, the value of design thinking so they can actually push the process forward? You know, that's hard. Uh, it, it, it's really hard and, and I guess uh, I, I don't have a great answer. I, I, I can tell you what I know doesn't work mm -hmm. is 
selling the value of design. Yeah. It just doesn't <laughs> yeah. work. Uh, so I guess my advice to a designer that's in that situation is just keep doing the work. And, uh, and the value will become apparent. Keep doing the work. Keep doing the research. Keep challenging when you know that the users are not, that, 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 the, that the features or solutions being proposed are not what the users want. Just, you've got to just keep at the tactical level being data-based about what you've learned from your real users and document that data, document the quotes, mm-hmm. and, and keep at it. It's not easy, but I believe it's a ground game, if you will, if, excuse the metaphor, but um, it, it, it is not a, it's not a strategy game. It, that's what I found. It just selling the value of design conceptually because everybody agrees. Like nobody, nobody disagrees with design today. Mm-hmm. And yet we see, we all see a lot of instances where, but you're not really acting on it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're just not seeing the tactical aspects uh, of, of a designer's craft. Uh, and, and I think that's what's needed more of. See the quotes, see the user research, see the wireframes, see the sketches. Mm. You know, uh, just keep doing that work. Get some buy-in from your engineer and coding compatriots because they know that they're backlogged. They know that they're waiting on you. If you're one designer on a 20-person team, mm. I know that there's a design backlog. Mm. Right. You don't have to tell me what you're building. You could be building an API-based yeah. platform. There is a design backlog. Get your engineers to surface that backlog. Um, but keep Keep doing the work. So it sounds like... Uh, go ahead, go ahead. It sounds that, like, to some degree, it's making the process transparent so that people can actually see the value that you're yes. producing. Yeah. Um, and socializing the value of design. It, it kind of reminds me of, like, Paul Rand, like, with this folder. Like, moving around. Like, there are people yeah. he's handing this thing to. But, but at the artifact level. Yeah. At the tactical level. Yeah. Because, again... At the strategic level, yeah, I've just... Just going over people's heads. Yeah, it's like, of course I agree with good design. Of course I want good design. I, I, yeah. You know what? I buy iPhones. Yeah. 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 Hey, look, yeah, you, we've all seen this. So, yeah. um, you know, it, 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 it's not easy, but, but I, think that's the, I think that's the key for a designer in that situation. Who's the most likely ally or sponsor? Uh, I believe it's probably the coding engineer, mm. interestingly enough. Um, Expand on that. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that that's the person that uh, is is going to be the that's the that's the principal collaborator. That I, I let me back up. Yeah. A company can make a certain investment in its products. Yeah. And by and by the way, this would apply to service design and whatever. But yeah, I'm, I'm using product design example. IBM is investing. Identically, we talk about the cost of the design. We, we are investing in design a lot, but forget that for a second. We're investing in our products exactly what we're going to invest in our products. Mm. We've just chosen to shift some of the investment to design as a, as a particular capability and lower our investment in something else. Mm. That, that, any business person is doing this. You're, you're not actually investing more in anything. You're simply saying, look, I've got at my startup, my last startup, I forget what the numbers were, but I had 31% that I was going to invest in R&D. And so now it's just a matter of, is that going to be 100% coders? Is it going to be 90% coders and 10% architects? Is it going to be 50% coders, 10% architects, 10% product managers, and 20% designers? That's what we're talking about here. 
We're not talking about additional investment. We're talking about where the ratio of spend goes. And so for the designer that's on a team where the ratio of investment in the formally trained designer is very, very small, you know, where where do you need to get buy-in? You need to get buy-in that the, you know, let's call it for for this conversation, if the overspend is in engineering, Mm -hmm. you're going to need to get buy-in from the engineers doing the best work that they need more designers. Right. That's who's going to influence because clearly you've got a management team that believes engineering is everything in that example. Right. So going to the management team and speaking to them in the abstract Mm -hmm. that they should reduce their investment in engineering and increase the investment in you it's not going to get you far. It hasn't in my experience, <laughs> right? So, but the engineers on the ground, the people in the team, the people delivering the outcome, they do know what's going on. And they will help you and they will become allied. And if you can get those other developers uh, and product managers, but in my experience, it's been if you can get those other developers saying, hey, look, if we had one more designer, even if it cost one of us in general, um, or as we grow, let's add the design side, not an R side, uh, is probably a better way to put it. Um, that's where you're gonna get a lot of leverage. So expanding on teams and team structure, sorry, team culture, um, you believe in movable work environments as mm-hmm. opposed to open work environments. Well, movable and open, but yeah. But yeah. Um, what, what does that look like and what are the advantages of that kind of uh, environment? Yeah. So uh, it, gets big, it gets back to this notion of how do you empower teams, uh, in my mind. And what we've found is that uh, teams actually uh, configure themselves differently depending on the context of their project. Mm-hmm. And we see it all the time. Um, back, you might have seen over our shoulders today, some of, the, some of these things have have moved around, but yeah, everything seems to be on wheels. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. That's what I mean. So yeah. uh, you, you'll actually see earlier before we were uh, taping, there was a, a, a desk rolled by. What happens is when you're, you know, let's take a typical software product release. Uh, you may uh, kick off uh, the work on some big new hill. Now, all of our products are continuously delivering, like everybody's doing today. But there's still moments of time when you're really kind of opening the aperture to how you're gonna tackle some big new thing, whatever it might be. Um, you'll actually see the team, you'll see the table start to come together. You'll see them point to each other. You'll see the headphones come off. You'll see more interaction. You'll see the whiteboards move in and crazy back and forth, low fidelity sketching. Uh, and slowly, you'll kinda see the whiteboards either become irrelevant, become stale, You'll see the headphones come on, they've organized around an idea, and now they're in execution mode. Mm -hmm. And the tables and the desks will start to point away from each other. And the space will get very ragged looking because you'll stop making eye contact and people will stop doing that. They'll move out. And that's okay, they kind of want to be isolated Mm -hmm. for a while to just execute. So uh, we found that to be that this dynamism based on work on project context mm-hmm. uh, has really been fascinating. Uh, and, and so we explore it in, in any number of ways. We do it you know, in our production uh, floor here uh, at, at this very open teaming. In our workshopping space, 
uh, downstairs in our downstairs studio, uh, we've started exploring with uh, movable walls mm-hmm. and partitions. And uh, that's been very interesting because in that space, in a very dynamic stand-up, uh, we're, we're you know, doing empty maps, we're, we're mapping out user journey maps or whatever it might be, you might actually bring a team that is a, uh, a team working on a very big problem or multiple teams working on, uh, working on uh, discrete services but that are serving a common user journey. Uh, you can imagine a use case of somebody building a cognitive app uh, for uh, a cognitive app that includes weather and, loca- and, uh, and, and uh, mapping mm-hmm. information. These are very disparate services that are being built and considered uh, that, that span our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll bring a, whole, a big team together We'll open up the space, and then in a matter of seconds, they can create a walled environment, and they can actually go off and execute their, their separate threads, and then at the end of the day, they'll come back together for a playback, and they'll open up the whole space again right. where everybody can join. So this notion even of intimate spaces and unintimate spaces being able to created and destroyed mm-hmm. in seconds uh, has been really successful for us. So we have to break to community questions here, but before I do that, uh, you mentioned Watson, cognitive computing, and AI. Um, I'm actually curious if uh, if you think we're going to think of computers because Watson is about as human-like as it gets today when we think about cognitive computing. I think IBM's done a really good job of that, and and the innovation is just it's outpacing other innovation in other areas. So it feels like computers are getting to a point where they're getting more human-like. When you think of a world, say, 10 years from now, right, uh, and you think of the designers you're putting together in this building here, really all, all around the world, do you think they're going to be designing interfaces around a more human-like computer, and will they think of the computer as a human? Uh, to, like, it's, a weird, it's like a weird question, but... No, it's a good question. Yeah. I hope not. Right. I don't think we will. Yeah. Um, might somebody somewhere, yes... Um, I don't think we will, yeah. uh, and I hope it's not that way. Uh, because humans, I mean, uh, uh, computers, look, there, there is a, uh, c- com- computers will never, in my opinion, develop empathy, and uh, they certainly will never have humility. Uh, and in that, in that sense, they won't be curious, right? Uh, and, and, they will and should be, and in IBM's view, uh, official view, uh, Watson as a specific AI will always be for augmenting human endeavors, mm-hmm. which means there will always be a human user at the center of what we do. And Watson will be thought of as a way to augment that person's mastery of their environment. And that, that really is what IBM, uh, at its heart, has always been about. Uh, there's an apocryphal uh, conversation that uh, Elliot Noyes had uh, shortly before he died in, in the 1970s, where somebody asserted what IBM was, and he said, no, you've got it all wrong. Uh, what IBM is, what its character is, is helping humans master their environment. Mm. And I love that phrase, and I think that is the role that we see Watson playing, is simply 
an elevated set of capabilities to help human beings master our environment and to make our lives a little bit easier. Uh, so I hope we don't think of systems as humans. Um, I'm pretty sure we won't, but I'm not sure that that's a universal statement. Right. But I think it is an IBM statement. Fantastic. Well, now we get to go to this fun community question set. Uh, so we reached out to our community and they gave us five questions that they want us to ask every guest, okay? So All we're right. gonna, these, these could be rapid fire if you want. So um, the first question is, how do you explain the role of design to people at IBM? Oh, I think, uh, <laughs> I think design here ultimately is a way for us to better prioritize work uh, so that we can uh, uh, move faster and deliver more delightful outcomes to our users. But it's uh, a place like IBM, like you said, we have you know hundreds of thousands of employees. We have a lot of ideas. People sometimes confuse ideas for innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody has a good idea. Um, sometimes it becomes difficult to uh, to, to, to know what to do first. What, what should we do right now? And design and design thinking gives us an ability to say what we should be doing is, is what your user needs us to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that gives us an immediate kind of uh, north star that uh, I think has really coalesced us around it. So uh, to a large degree, I, I, I find it's a great way for us to prioritize work. The second question is, have you noticed any patterns around how design teams are organized at design mature companies? <laughs> so, uh, can you name me five design mature companies? That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> um, uh, I, because I do, I think there are a very few companies that I would say are design mature, mm-hmm. uh, truly. We, we could maybe, five. M- maybe five. Maybe exactly. <laughs> five. Uh, uh, so uh, the quick answer is no, I don't. Uh, and I think that we are, uh, in general, we are at such a, uh, such a different state. I mean, mm-hmm. again, we, we, could, we could name a few, and, and I don't know whether it's five or 10 or 20, but there, there's a five nine number that I think we would agree that are design mature. They are design mature because they are design mature. And they've been doing this for a long, long time. And so uh, the magic to becoming design mature is actually not about how designers are organized. It's about how the non-designers think, mm. right? Uh, some companies, you walk in the door and the person at the reception desk, he or she understands in their heart the value of design to that organization. Mm. That is a design mature company. And that's not a designer. And that's not anybody working on products. They are delivering a service in the sense that they're greeting you, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. They get it. Um, I think most of the rest of us are on a journey you know, toward that. Uh, we've chosen uh, a, a, uh, a, an organiza- organizing principle that's quite different than I think almost everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, we think it's the correct one for us, and that is that uh, we, do, we don't operate, our, our designers do not operate in a studio business model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like you bring us work and you say, oh, I got a project, design me the answer and hand it back, the agency model. Uh, we actually onboard our designers, we put them through a boot camp, uh, and then at the end of 90 days, they are deployed out to the business. They're in the business. They're on the same team. They're on the same 
organization team as the engineers and product managers. Now they have a they, they report functionally to you know other designers, but uh, their their pay, their 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 business results, their their evaluations, they're in the business. They're responsible for their outcomes exactly the same way as uh, the the engineers and product managers and salespeople and, and, and marketing people are. I think that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hear all the time from from too many. Uh, uh, designers that are either at agencies or working in agency models of, well, I, I gave them a great design. They just, they can't execute it. Those guys, right? They, they can't execute it. Uh, to me, anything that's not in the outcome, anything that doesn't get executed, isn't designed. It's, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if it's on the floor. If you didn't get it through, your job as a designer is to develop the communication and leadership skills to get your ideas in the product. And if you don't, uh, we need to work on that part of your design capabilities. Because if you think design is simply about, if you think design as a profession is simply about the thing, Mm -hmm. just like everybody else in business, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. It's about the ability to lead other people to the right answer and to get them to adopt it. And that's a skill that we work on uh, endlessly with our teams is how do you, you know, we talk about leadership a lot here and uh, it's not about leading people. It's in terms of organizational. Um, it's, about, it's about communicating and articulating your idea mm-hmm. in such a way that you bring followers along. Uh, so that's a, a, a big part of our design process and uh, we're on that journey. But so, Short answer to your question is we do have, I think, a pretty different approach from what many other corporate design programs have taken in that our designers are embedded in every division of our company and none at the central shared service. Uh, and second of all, that our, uh, our, our approach to design thinking is really more focused, in a, in a sense, on the non-designers than the designers to, uh, to get into their hearts and minds. In fact, the the mission of our, of our program team is not about better products or better services. The mission of our, pro- of our team, the mission of our program, is to create a sustainable culture of design and design thinking at IBM. Those are separate things. And uh, one is about design as craft and excellence, and the other is about everybody at IBM. So when you're the only designer in a business, how do you convince the leaders in that business of the value of design? Yeah, well, we talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think you do it by, uh, by you know, making your work more transparent and by gaining allies at the team level, at the tactical level. Right. Uh, if it's uh, software product design, then it's, then it's the developers. Mm. Um, uh, but but I, think that that's, I think that's the way to do it. Because nobody, as I said before, uh, nobody doesn't believe in design, and they all believe they're investing in design. Mm-hmm. There you are. You're the you're the designer. Go. Um, so it's exposing the work and exposing the backlogs in engineering in this example that are occurring because there's not enough of you to go around. The next question is: How should designers measure and present the results of their work to people in their business? 
Oh, that's a good one. There's probably some cultural aspects that uh, that, that a person could tap into. Uh, they're they're, they're going to find uh, various mechanisms in a given uh, culture. Uh, you know, some cultures maybe uh, you know. Uh, there's an aspect of our culture here that's very Apple Keynote based. Mm -hmm. There's an aspect of our culture that's very Slack based. There's an aspect of our culture that's very playback. Show it in playbacks. In our design, uh, in our design group, uh, we like to see portfolios. I mean, so there are there are tactical ways that you should tap into in your organization. But the main thing is, uh, you know, however you whatever channel you use, I think it's. Uh, you know, present the artifacts of your work um, and, and present them in probably in, in, in a couple of frames. One is in the frame of user feedback that you've received. One is in the frame of productivity of the overall team's output, not the backlogs of engineers and yeah. all that. And the third is probably uh, in the frame of com competition. Um, show how uh, your thoughts and ideas uh, could accelerate some leapfrog uh, advance over competition. And again, just to get very tactical, I'm talking about at the at the sketch wireframe or or high res mockup level, like like before and after kind of things or side by side kind of things. Very tactical. Um, and tell a story around it, you know, tell, tell stories about it, but uh, I guess that's, I don't know if that's... It's good. <laughs> so we can end with this final question. All right. How are you feeling? You feeling good? I'm good. All right. I'm so good. good. <laughs> uh, the final question is, uh, as the function of design continues to evolve, what are some roles and methodologies that you think will emerge over the next five years? Over the next five years? Um, we just created a hill for you. Gave a time frame. <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. Uh, let's see, four designers in the next five years. What's my wow? Uh, I think, I, you know, I think what we're doing is fairly timeless. I think it's timeless because, to be honest, I think most of what, most of what we do is common sense. <laughs> Therefore, it's kind of timeless. Uh, so I'm not sure that there's yeah. new roles. Uh, I will say this, that on the design side, as we move in, you talked, we talked earlier about cognitive and about uh, systems, AI systems, and becoming more human-like. And certainly, the interface, uh, interfaces are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I do think that there's going to be an interesting new, in some respects, I think the editorial and content designer may be the visual designer of the future. Mm -hmm. Because tone across services a consistent tone is going to become uh, as ubiquitous to a brand as a visual identity. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that is a, I think that's a design role that exists that is actually going to evolve in very interesting ways and become more important. But I think also that, you know, let me take, uh, let me take three communities real quick. Uh, that I think, uh, where I think it will be interesting to see what happens over the next five years. And again, we have talked about earlier, five years is forever, uh, it seems like. But uh, I think the biggest change will be in academia. Mm. Um, look, this, this need to work fast and therefore uh, team 
with diverse interdisciplinary skill sets, uh, there is no bigger challenge for academia today, in my opinion. And I, you know, I, I talk to business leaders all around the world, and we are all talking to universities. And this, uh, this has to be the number one piece of feedback to universities, is people are coming out today with massive skill sets, uh, way more than, certainly way more than me and my peers had. I'm seeing uh, people come out of university today way more skilled and way more savvy in the ways of business than ever before, but they are still not learning how to truly team with people that don't look and sound and think like them. I think, I could, I, I think uh, colleges are getting that message, uh, but I think that's where we're going to see the biggest change, is that design schools and non-design programs will incorporate design and design mindsets and design thinking more aggressively into their education. I'm real excited about uh, the University of Texas. We're sitting here in Austin today film, uh, uh, taping this. Uh, we're getting very excited, and actually we're going to help teach a course at University of Texas oh, starting next fall. Uh, we had, and I can't remember exactly how many, and they'll, uh, Doreen Lorenzo, who was CEO of Frog Design, who's standing up that program. Uh, she'll kill me because I've forgotten the number, <laughs> but we had something like 12 or 14 of the deans of different colleges at UT here in the studio last year. And uh, as a part of that program, and they got exposed to design thinking, they got exposed to what we were seeing with, with graduates. And this isn't a design school problem. Yeah. This is an every single college sure. in a university problem. They are not giving their students enough time and enough encouragement to go work on projects yeah. with people that aren't like them. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see a sea change, and the UT program is an example of that, uh, where all of those other schools stood up, and they actually funded the new Integrated Center for Design at UT. It's in its first year this year. Uh, next year will be its second year. I think they have about 100, 105 students right now. I think you're going to see more of this, where universities actively start uh, uh, creating spaces, both academic spaces as well as physical spaces, for multidisciplinary teams to go do projects. Yeah. That's number one. Yeah. Number two in the, in, the, uh, in the startup world, you know, we're two years, this will be the third year that John Maida, uh, who I know you guys have talked to and yeah. looking forward to his. Just yesterday. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> looking forward to seeing that. John, John's, John's a great friend of the program. Um, uh, you know, we're just the third year at South by this year. He'll be releasing Design in Tech. Yeah. I think you're gonna see in the startup world We've already seen it to some degree, but I think it's going to be more overt that if you don't have uh, formally de trained designers on your team, I think VC people are going to start kind of demanding that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's going to be a sea change in the going in kind of founder position of startups uh, because this notion of, I know you think you got a new, I, th I know you think you're solving a new problem, right? but you actually aren't mm -hmm. and the experience matters. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're going to see that more overtly on the startup side. And, of course, on the enterprise side, you know, wow. Uh, I mean, over the last two years, the number of acquisitions, you know, obviously, you know, we were, we were kind of early to that party in terms of uh, really, you know, turning that on in a new program. There, there were obviously some design mature companies, but in terms of a company our size and in 2012 really getting in front of it and saying, look, we're going to stand up and hire 1,000 or 1,500 people over the next few years. Uh, we were the first, but we were by no means the only at this point. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of companies building 
what I think will become great corporate design programs. Mm. And that is, uh, you know, the, the, the impact on talent in the marketplace is massive. And I think the, imp- the impact on uh, agencies will be big as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because more and more enterprises are starting to realize that this is some serious intellectual property uh, that's really important to us as brands, as, uh, as, as understanders of our customers and their, and their lives. Um, so I think there will be a shift in, in power at the enterprise and agency level uh, to some degree. But that academic one is the one that's most interesting to me. And well, I think is more there. and most fundamental. Yeah, we need it there. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you, Phil. Yes, thank you, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you all thank for you. putting this whole series together. You thank you. Yeah. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations! Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes Store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests. Go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you, we'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us, we wanna converse with you. Uh, we're not gonna leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.